You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Podcast hosting is my game. On July the 11th, World Population Day came and went with merely a whimper as the world population grew by another 220,000 people that day to a planet now defined by its apparently flammable Arctic regions. I sent out the Sustainable Population Australia media release to the deafening sound of a pin dropping on soft cushions. A saving grace was PGAP's last World Population Day special, with SPA's own John Coulter launched just before the day, and the episode has done quite well. I should say the day almost went by without a trace, if it weren't for the fact that Population Matters launched their Change Champions Awards around that day. Now, the majority of these awards, promoting reproductive and environmental rights, went to people such as Wendo Azed in Kenya, who received the Women's Champion Award, and other awards going to women living in places such as Zimbabwe and Bangladesh. Now, if these were the only award recipients, then you would have heard nothing from the mainstream media. But, ah... Right at the end, there was a special award that went to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex for stopping at two children. Now, as we all know, there is a peculiar cultural phenomena going on. Every time the words Harry and Meghan are mentioned, and right on cue, the mainstream media will hyperventilate itself into hyperbolic fits. It will run around aimlessly in circles and throw out random semantics that appear on the surface full of bile but search underneath and it's just full of incoherent jumble. Women's Weekly has set a precedent on its foamy-mouthed royal obsession which really has made monsters out of us all. So the media was in a fit over their award, and so I was invited to talk live on air on Melbourne's 3AW Talkback Radio. It was a good opportunity to remind my interviewer of the other award winners and to speak briefly on Sustainable Population Australia's own Stop at Two campaign and our media release for World Population Day. The callers who spoke their mind after my interview all hated me, of course, so job well done, I guess. Ultimately, the same people who get themselves in a tiz over Harry and Meghan's awards are the very same people who would have ignored the whole thing entirely if they weren't involved in the first place. Speaking about people getting themselves into a hyperventilating loop, this is what many people on both sides of politics love to do when it comes to dismissing population sustainability. Some remain convinced that population sustainability advocates are all entirely the domain of the rantings of white men over the age of 65. Unfortunately, my next guest, Nandita Bajaj, the new Executive Director of World Population Balance, fulfils absolutely none of those above-mentioned criteria. Way to break everyone's presuppositions, Nandita. Aside from breaking down stereotypes, uh, Nandita is minimalist, vegan, child-free, an animal rights and social justice advocate looking for a deeper spiritual purpose in her life and that of the greater human story. During our conversation, I became entirely convinced that I found my kindred spirit and future partner in crime. I had an absolute blast bouncing off my favourite topics, including a pithy discussion around the challenges of diversity and inclusion in the sustainable population movement. After my talk with Nandita, I play the track Abolition from the vegan animal rights-themed power punk project Futuro a Vegan Pop. Their lead instigator, Pedro Alamant is a Peru-born gent now based in Melbourne. I got to know Pedro very well during my stint in Melbourne. I even played keyboards for one of the group's albums. These Spanish-sung songs are an absolute blast to listen to and full of political charge. Enjoy. Nandita, I would like to congratulate you on the top job at World Population Balance. How are you today? 
I'm doing really well, Michael. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. So am I, because um, we've got more in common than uh, just population. That is right. Now, before we head into your new role, give us a little executive summary about your previous work in activism and advocacy, and what are your main passions and drivers for wanting to make the world a better place? Yeah, in terms of my my new role, I've I have loved world population balance for a really long time, and I'm thrilled to be taking over the organization. You know, I've been a minimalist and an environmental advocate for my entire adult life, something that I know we both share. It started early on for me while I was in university. I started dabbling into philosophy, both Eastern and Western. I was really interested in delving deeper into self-discovery, figuring out, you know, the roots of identity formation and what are the different societal constructs that have kind of built this sense of self for me. And that was the beginning of this philosophical journey, which has guided much of my activism work for the past 20 years. That path has taken me from being an environmental advocate to then starting to include sustainable population advocacy in my work, and then most recently including animal advocacy. But, you know, I'd say at the core of all of my work is this ever-present question of, you know, what is the purpose of all of this and what is the best way for me to relate to these issues? Yeah, and I was just wondering, um, was there a specific light bulb moment? I guess with me, it's always been something that's been in my family, talking about population. (laughs) It's just been a bit of a given because people were into the work of Tim Flannery and Paul Ehrlich and other Australian figures. So I was just... Um, yeah, one, wondering what was your journey to getting uh, here? Very different from yours. Um, I did not grow up with a, an, a deep understanding about overpopulation issues, even though I was raised in the second most populous nation in the world. Somehow I missed that. But, you know, I'd say it's been a bit of a journey for me to to wake up to the fact that all of these different social justice movements that I've been interested in are actually interconnected. As I said, you know, minimalism, environmental advocacy, kind of looking at post-capitalist relationship, you know, with my own life and detaching myself from a lot of the materialistic values over the last couple of decades was the starting point. But then about 14 years ago, I'd met my husband, Mike, through a philosophy course that we were both taking, and we had a shared interest in minimalism, but also spirit. Early on in our relationship, we chatted about the decision whether to have kids, and we both decided that wasn't in line with a lot of our passions and advocacy work. And for Mike, he had actually studied environmental studies in university, so he'd been more aware of the overpopulation issue uh, long before he met me. So he definitely expanded my understanding on the connection between overpopulation and environmental degradation. And, you know, I'd say there was perhaps a light bulb moment there. Yeah, of course. You know, how did I not make that connection, especially given, you know, where I was born? And I know why I missed that connection, because of these really strong, pervasive pressures of pronatalism in my own culture that ties one's identity to parenthood. It was, you know, kind of invisible to me because I didn't really see any other options. And not to mention minimalism and kids, they don't mix that well together. That was a fairly um, quick decision for us. And we, over the last, you know, 14 years, have truly thrived in this child-free lifestyle. How much having kids actually, like, just transforms your life and even your ideals. You know, look at the sheer amount of resources you need to give your child a good start. Just diapers alone, which which have such a huge carbon footprint, but then, you know, the size of your house, you know, needing to be near a good school. You, you know, most parents need a car to transport their children around. You know, there's family vacations that, again, you don't want to 
you know, preclude your your kid from having all these interesting experiences that all the other kids are having. So, you know, inevitably you fly a little more. It's just everything in terms of your time, energy, resources, um, rightfully, because you've make an, you know, you've made a very big decision, goes into that decision. To what degree, you know, for, for me, for example, would I be able to direct my energy, um, my resources, my time, my financial resources into things that I really care about? Had I made that decision, it really would be immeasurable. Um, the, the amount of impact I wouldn't be able to have. And imagine you putting all that effort into making the next generation of, um, you know, vegan activists and they just end up rebelling and joining corporate America anyway. Like, I just know that my children would do that. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's It's true. And then I'd resent them deeply and then I'd start suffering and then I'd have to go to therapy because of me. You know, you, you know how everyone goes to therapy because of their parents? Yes. But no one <laughs> seems to think my children are going to go to therapy because of me. And I'm a really self-conscious person, so I would just hate to impose that on anyone. Yeah, I agree with you so much. I mean, I think in terms of even my own interest in figuring out who I really am. Uh, I mean, I'm 40 this year and I'm still trying to figure out my path in life and how to make the most impact on the planet. I'm glad that I have the time to put into myself to, to actually dissociate with a lot of these culturally conditioned behaviors, you know, the sense of self that that I've kind of inherited, whether it's from my culture, my family, the society. And all of that self-work takes time um, to make you fully available to, to, to make a difference. And, you know, my sense that for myself, if I had had kids, I'd rightfully want to dedicate a lot of my time to them. Because like I say, it's one of the most important decisions you make and you better be dedicating you know, the appropriate amount of time, money, and resources to that. I know I would have missed out on finding out uh, what my own purpose and goal in life is. And that would be a shame personally for me because I'm, um, like you say, I'm a self-conscious person, but also interested in in learning of what is the purpose of all of this? You know, why are we here? And is it really just to perpetuate some kind of a Ponzi scheme? I'm happy to not be on that treadmill. I'm sure I am on to some degree, but, <laughs> you know, it's a slightly different treadmill. At least it stops with you. <laughs> so, yes. Of all the population groups out there, World Population Balance is the organisation to which I feel I've built the closest relationship with. Um, I'd go to the extent of calling myself one of WPB's biggest fans. Well, I think that makes uh, two fans of WPB, you and me. Um, I actually stumbled upon uh, Dave Gardner's Dave Gardner's podcasts a few years ago while I was researching the movement. He and the staff, you know, they would do these fantastic roundtable chats about current news, and they would bring these incredible guests to their talks to to discuss different perspectives on overpopulation and overconsumption. And I just found them to be so engaging and educational. And so I also came to see world population balance as a, a watchdog um, that was celebrating those who were working so hard at addressing the issue, but also they weren't afraid to call out organizations um, and journalists you know, and, and media uh, platforms that were in denial of this issue and were as a result causing a lot of damage to the movement. And so, you know, I've come to see Dave as a real pioneer in this degrowth movement and helping to normalize this post-capitalist narrative. Um, so that was kind of the beginning for me. And then fast forward a few years, I started co-hosting the overpopulation with Dave uh, recently and he had been planning his retirement around the same time, so his position had recently been posted. And uh, just through my co-hosting work, I came to know the organization and the staff, and I really wanted to be part of that culture. So when you know the position opened, I, 
I jumped and I also felt a need to take a, you know, a bit more of a serious role in this advocacy, you know, just come to an end of my third career path and was looking to, to get into this movement. So uh, after a two month grueling selection process, I am over the moon <laughs> to have been appointed as the new ED. I'm going to bring a couple of threads together with your appointment. Um, I recently saw Dave and Karen Schrag on a documentary, The Way to Live, and it was so great to see them on camera again. Um, Karen, at one moment, mentions to the camera that the population movement is too white. I I think I'm paraphrasing (laughs) her. Um, Indeed, this seems to be a criticism levelled at the movement, which seems to be escalating with the social and political climates in recent years. So I must admit to having some relief (laughs) to see the new ED of WellPB bucking the stereotype of the senior white male. Do you have any (laughs) observations on this? Uh, For example, do you believe there's been barriers within sustainable population advocacy um, as welcoming broader demographics, for example? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I do remember watching that film recently as well. And I enjoyed actually seeing the messages from Dave Paxson and then Dave Gardner and Karen Schrock kind of all coming together. And it weaved really well. But in terms of the the demographic, um, uh, you know, being mainly white, I did appreciate that she cuts right to the chase and calls that out in the movement. My personal experience has reflected that same observation that the movement is dominated by a largely white demographic. I tend not to participate in that kind of cancel culture that you're speaking about. You know, I wouldn't call it a slight against the movement, you know, just because um, most of the people involved are white. Uh, Many of those people have inspired my own interest in the movement, and I deeply admire their work. But as you say, you know, with the social and political climate in recent years, a movement such as this, especially being homogenous, doesn't bode well. People do tend to conflate a lot of social woes with the population movement. So a diversity of voices to help balance that skewed view is very much needed. And a diversity of voices of all types is becoming increasingly important to elevate this message, um, you know, because we have been and we are in an urgent state of ecological overshoot and planetary decline for quite some time. So I see this both as a push and a pull factor in terms of increasing diversity, you know, in terms of enriching our understanding of this issue from multiple perspectives. Those of us, you know, like me who are in the less dominant group and care deeply about this issue need to step up and take responsibility. And then those who are, those who have been part of the dominant group need to make room for those voices. And I wouldn't say it's just a strategic move um, to do that. I think it's actually essential to expand our understanding of the issue and to move things forward in a you know, bold and compassionate way. And this is something that I've personally been very um, passionate about. I think we share views on in regards to cancel culture. And I, and I personally think the best way to move forward is just bringing in people into conversation. And that's something that I've tried to do with SPA. Um, I note that we are both advocates for social justice. But one thing that I have observed in the sustainable population movement is one can often hit a brick wall in a climate of identity politics and so-called wokeness. Um, What are your thoughts around the fact that while this movement has many positives that if misdirected or without nuance that can actually be counterproductive to providing needed family planning and sexual reproductive services to communities across the globe that need it most? Wow. <clears throat> that that's a brilliant question, Michael. Just a light question, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I keep things on the surface, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It'll just take a couple of words to to explain it. <laughs> In one word or less, please. 
I think I get it, but I just want to clarify when you say the climate and of identity politics and so-called wokeness, you are talking about social justice movements who who feel that they have um, authority over what social justice means and kind of see the population movement as um, being at odds with social justice. Is that kind of what you're thinking? There's often a discussion of um, bringing family planning services or, 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 the, or the foreign aid um, to communities around the globe that need it the most. And there's often that blowback of in the West, we can't, we can't be involved in, in the decisions and the community decisions and um, in, in this process at all. Um, and that it's, it's a blaming of um, women of colour in the global south in order to obfuscate from the consumption patterns and privileges of people in the West. And I suppose my issue with that is, um, although there is merit in that, um, what that doesn't account of the fact that there's still a financial logistical gap for services that are actually needed and demanded by women who, who don't have access to that are impacted by patriarchy and um, male-dominated cultures. And so it avoids understanding the nuance of that, I suppose. Yeah. 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 No, I, um, I'm a hundred percent with you and my read of the climate of, of the identity politics, you know, is very, very similar to yours. And, you know, I just want to say, um, you know, at the outset that your work and my work in sustainable population activism is 100% framed around social injustices that are perpetuated through our soaring numbers. And it comes from a deep care for the planet. So when you see a lot of this rhetoric of pitting social justice movements against each other, it's very frustrating. Just recently, this last week, there was an article in the Washington Post um, that says, it's wrong to blame overpopulation for climate change. And the journalist just comes out and says, climate change isn't caused by population growth. It's caused by greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels. As if there's no connection between the two, that, that the greenhouse gas emissions just exist in a vacuum. Um, you know, and then there's been a couple of other ones. There's one I'm, I'm, thinking of writing a response to in Ms. Magazine uh, that says, don't blame babies or their mothers for climate change. Um, you know, there's no dearth of ideologies like that out there that are equating any mention of overpopulation with exploitation. And I don't know if you know about, you know, George Monbiot, the um, journalist from The Guardian. He's, he's a highly oh, yeah. respected <laughs> highly respected environmentalist. And, you know, he's also an animal advocate, but he has alluded to the sustainable population activism being racist. So I'm with you in being quite frustrated to be swimming in these ideological divisions within these social justice movements. And, uh, you know, I also agree that the premise for a lot of these divisions is this deeply unexamined ideology of how pronatalist and patriarchal these uh, cultures and countries are, including my own. Pronatalism is the social bias towards having kids. And we know are from research that there's no biological bias to have kids. There's a social bias and the social bias is so strong that we're made to believe that our desire to procreate is, is natural and universal. And of course, it's perpetuated by patriarchy, religion, you know, growth-based e economic systems, capitalism. But with, with that kind of a cultural mindset, any discussion about family size is seen as an impingement on our reproductive autonomy. But a lot of the activists that are 
you know, fighting against overpopulation or denying overpopulation, um, they, they don't realize that our current pronatalist structures, you know, even in our countries, let alone developing countries, are mired in a type of population control that, that we are blind to. Um, we've kind of come to see as our identity, you know, especially women's identity as intertwined with motherhood. Any discussion of women's empowerment that is innately tied to their role as mothers is, is still working from within that same constraints of population control and pronatalism. It's like you were saying when activists say things like overpopulation is racist because you're blaming people of color in the developing world, what is being missed is that most of the people living there are not living in free and enlightened societies where women have full reproductive autonomy. You know, it's quite the opposite. So, you know, this kind of rhetoric, like you say, is prevents any kind of real work in family planning and reproductive health services from reaching the communities that need it the most. And I think to me, what I suppose is the most frustrating thing is that it's for people in the West coming to broad conclusions based on their ideology without actually talking to anyone. You know, my view of social inclusion, social injustice, is that you kind of try to clear yourself of preconceptions and actually talk to people, actually ask them, actually ask people on the ground what it's like for them. And I think if people did talk to um, so many women from the from global south communities rural global south communities um, their perceptions may be changed if they were to let them <laughs> that is such a great way of looking at it because on the one hand you can see why there is some suspicion around the west being involved in the affairs of developing countries you know there have been some bad things that have come out of that kind of interference so rightfully there's reason to be suspicious and concerned and protective. At the same time, there is this knee-jerk reaction to, to just say, this is what those people want to be doing. And without getting any kind of perspectives from real people, uh, the kind of work you're, you're doing, to find out what do people really want for their own liberation. Um, don't make generalized assumptions about you know, people here and people there it reduces people into into kind of these general blocks of culture without giving any kind of credence to their individuality and their autonomy and their desire for for liberation now we share three things in common um, or three further things in common that's uh, minimalism uh, being child free and we're both vegan too with a history and animal rights activism um, my observation is that many in the animal activism movement are more sympathetic to population than most in the often left of politics, perhaps because of romance, and I'm going to say romance, the humans are so great, is lost when one is intimate to the way we treat other species. Uh, <laughs> and perhaps looking after <laughs> rescued animals takes the edge of having your own children. Um, <laughs> however, animal rights activists often see population as a secondary issue it probably comes down to the fact that veganism is more of a younger generation thing, but I find myself breaking into a sweat every time I'm invited to sustainable population dinners because I find from the <laughs> other side that the sustainable population movement is very open to the rights of wildlife but uh, has a very different view in terms of uh, diets and, and things like that. So what are your observations? Yeah, great question. And my, my first question back to you is, how large is your sustainable population group that you're being invited to dinners? <laughs> <laughs> Our membership's in the hundreds, and I can't say they're large dinners. <laughs> <laughs> that thing that draws people together, I often find myself having to apologize profusely for everyone because uh, chances are I might not be able to eat there. Yes, yes. Well, that describes my experience at many other d dinners. But I, I really do appreciate this dichotomy that you're pointing to. I think about this a lot, uh, especially because we, we both are part of two 
kind of separate movements. They're both social justice movements. Um, and not a lot of people see the intersection between the two. You know, I find people in both movements, the sustainable population movement and the animal advocacy movement, um, they fall somewhere on the spectrum. Um, there are some population advocate, uh, activists um, that come from purely an anthropocentric lens. You know, they might care primarily about the survival of our species, and they might even see biodiversity as a means to help us thrive. Like you say, they are the ones that don't often have an issue with abominable practice of, of animal agriculture. Um, and then there are others who see humans as you know, stewards of the planet and hold all life forms in deep reverence. But then same goes with the animal advocacy movement. You know, some see as becoming vegan as kind of the ultimate pinnacle of animal protection. It's a tremendously important step, but, you know, there are, veganism is not limited to our consumptive habits as I, you and I have both discovered. Um, there are other animal advocates or vegans who do see the connection between our reproductive decisions and its impacts on animals. And that impact cannot be underscored. Like just even if you look at the last 50 years of our population having doubled from 4 billion to 8 billion, our meat consumption has uh, gone up five times. And, you know, we've seen the latest reports from the Global Footprint Network about the decline in global vertebrate species population of 68% in that same time frame. Um, you know, same goes for the number of animals used in horrific experiments, poppy mills, all sorts of exploitation. So, you know, adding, adding 1 million new people to this planet every five days kind of nullifies all of the small achievements that animal advocates are making. We are then basically increasing our demand exponentially. And animals are part of that uh, puzzle, inevitably. I just feel, you know, as, as animal advocates, it is, you know, we kind of took a leadership role in, in pushing the plant-based diets in terms of the climate change movement. You know, it took environmentalists decades to, to follow up and catch up on that. And I just feel we cannot afford the same inertia on, on population. We really need to start normalizing the discussion on the, the link between population and animal exploitation. I do, I actually have a couple of positives to share too, is, um, I don't know if you're aware, but in the, the national, the U.S. Animal Rights Conference for the last couple of years, there's been um, a session on overpopulation. There was one with um, Alexandra Paul, with Lilani Munter and Travis Ryder. And I thought that was fantastic and it was really well received um, by the animal advocates. And then I just found out this week that my proposal to the Animal Law Conference um, to talk about the connection between overpopulation and, and animal exploitation just got approved. Uh, so that's, you know, that's cause for celebration in terms of normalizing these conversations. It makes me remember the first talk that I gave on overpopulation wasn't at an animal rights conference. Yeah, look, let's bring this all together. Where do you see minimalism or lower consumption, having smaller or child-free families and going to a plant-based diet coming together to manifest your vision of a better post-growth world? Yeah, it's it's interesting, Michael. I kind of came to each of those awakenings at different points in my life and kind of randomly. It was it was kind of an evolutionary journey for me. I started out as a minimalist, you know, and then became um, sustainable population activist. And then like going from being a lifelong vegetarian to a vegan more recently. It was more like a piecemeal type of a approach where I'm adding, you know, more layers of compassion to, to my consciousness. But I'd say just a couple of years ago, I started my graduate degree in humane education. 
And that's really kind of taught me to frame things in a way that's very helpful. The, the framework of humane education looks at issues through, um, you know, the intersectionality between human rights, animal protection, and, and, and environmental preservation. And it's such a brilliant lens because instead of looking at these issues from a piecemeal kind of a way, which I had been doing, it just ties it all together. You know, personally for me, as I'm moving forward, I'm looking at, uh, even in my degree, the, the intimate links between pronatalism, anthropocentrism, and overpopulation, and then their impacts on humans, animals, and the environment. I'd say, you know, in terms of my vision for a post-growth world, we would see our place as humans uh, as having a smaller yet significant part of a rich global ecosystem. Uh, all species are afforded the right to exist and thrive, free from our interference. Um, we, we would be driven by a very different calling than greed and consumption and, and GDP growth. And, you know, like our happiness would be a function of not how much we can take, but rather how much we're able to give. Um, and of course, you know, my personal um, passion is, is our motivations to procreate uh, would be free from oppressive social constructs of pronatalism. And that decision would inevitably include the well-being of both the planet and the new life that we are bringing to the planet. Great vision. I hope we get there. <laughs> and uh, th thank you so much for joining so many of the pieces to together. I think it's good to be able to recognise things holistically and to recognise their own blind spots. Now, it's often, I suppose, levelled at population, uh, even when people have been sympathetic to it, that it's part or a component of a larger discussion on post-growth or degrowth. And I believe in many cases that is true. However, Karen Schrag raised something to me the, the other day, is that when you have larger and larger numbers of people, it undermines democracy and equity. In the USA, you know, over the past 10 years, it's uh, I don't know the exact figures, but it's gone from something closer to 300 million to something closer to 400 million, but still with the same president, or, or, or not the same president, but the same one person yes. leading the country. There's been no moves to, uh, okay, now we're 350 million, let's think of splitting into two countries or, or, or something yes. like that to make it more equitable. I just want to put this observation into the next question. And that's what role do you see world population balance, America, USA, Canada, in a move towards a post-growth or even degrowth world? What are your plans for world population balance and where do you see taking this one? Yeah. And, you know, I want to give, um, you know, a shout out to, to Dave, um, both the Daves that have come before me uh, in playing such a pivotal role in bringing the degrowth conversation to the mainstream. Um, I definitely want to build on that. It, it resonates with me personally. I do believe, you know, it is an ethical responsibility for us to be looking at our consumption habits. Population and consumption are intimately tied together. Often we see it being couched as a debate that it's not overpopulation, it's overconsumption. And there is, again, such a dichotomy when it's framed in those terms because it's it's a fallacy to try to divide them up. Yes, we absolutely need to be watching our consumption patterns here, but we also need to understand that, you know, there are billions of people who are living in substandard uh, living conditions who ethically need to raise their standard of living and increase their per capita consumption. So um, it is important for us to, to remember that while we need to decrease our consumption, people need to increase their consumption uh, from a social justice uh, point of view. Our role, I believe, you know, in North America is even more important to look at our reproductive decisions as having um, 
uh, a much larger effect because of our consumption habits. You know, a child that's born in North America has 20 to 100 times um, bigger footprint compared to someone else living in the global, global South, depending on where they are. You know, there is quite an onus on us to think very deeply about both our reproductive decisions and our consumption patterns. And, you know, personally for me, I also want to bring this other angle to looking at overpopulation by challenging um, pronatalism. You know, as I said earlier, when we come from a cultural mindset that um, pronatalism is a given or um, having children is a given, any talk about overpopulation is seen as an impingement on our reproductive autonomy. It's seen as a sacrifice that we're asking people to make. Whereas, you know, if we are really able to liberate people from these social pressures of feeling like they need to have kids because that's just what everyone does, we can start having more nuanced conversations that aren't as charged around family size decisions and smaller impact families. Pronatalist values, they, they tend to leave out so many people who don't fit that dominant narrative. You know, child-free people like us kind of are seen as, you know, outcasts, um, selfish, or, you know, different, different kinds of names that you might get called. Uh, then there's people, childless people who suffer the same kind of scrutiny. Uh, families who adopt, fam people who are part of the LGBTQ community, kind of, you know, get left out of that, that dominant narrative. So I really would um, like to help people, people see that pronatalism, you know, like capitalism is, is premised on a Ponzi scheme of unabated growth with, with no real regard for individual rights, for animal rights, or the, you know, dilapidation of our, of our planet. And indeed, and uh, pragmatically, it uh, really turns our lives upside down. No one has ever said having kids is easier than I thought. Same for me. No, I've never heard anyone say that. Yeah, I've, I've often heard friends who are parents say that the reality of the hard work that's involved in parenthood is often not depicted in culture, in media, you know, there's there's kind of this romantic idea of parenthood that is being sold. That is even, it takes a toll on parents because parents feel this, you know, kind of gnawing need to somehow reach this pinnacle of perfection as, as being able to do it all. And then when they can't do it, there is this sense of guilt, constant guilt of whatever it is that they're not able to to meet in terms of their own aspirations, in terms of um, their own life goals, or being better parents. It's just, you, no one can win in this game of perfection, you know, the, the image of perfection. And imagine that if you get stressed out by raising kids in today's stressful society, you're judged and seen as a monster if you regret having children you're judged as seen as a monster if you if you feel oh you know maybe adoptions are, should be the path they go down you're judged as seen as a monster if your um, relationship breaks down your nuclear family because it's impossible to raise kids and work and maintain a intimate you know, relationship, you're judged to see as a monster. It's just like, I don't know why people make everything so difficult for each other. I, I, yeah. This, this is probably a spiritual question now, but if you can step back and look at it, the whole thing kind of doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I mean, especially this point about not being able to express any kind of even temporary regret or permanent regret. I mean, we regret our decisions all the time. And to expect that somehow parenthood is just going to work out perfectly and your emotions are going to sort themselves out perfectly is placing such an unrealistic expectation on parents. And, and like you say, parents are vilified for expressing even the slightest bit of regret for everything that they might have lost in making that decision. And that's 
valid regret. It doesn't make them bad parents. Most of the parents I'm talking about are very committed parents and incredible parents, but you, I think, have to just acknowledge that something is being lost. A part of you is being lost, and I think the way you are trying to frame it in more of a spiritual way, for me, kind of that ever-present question of finding out who I really am, you know, what am I placed here to do? Those kind of pivotal questions don't have a chance to really emerge when your entire life is cut out for you um, as a parent. Not to say that, you know, parents don't engage in spiritual inquiry, but I'm saying it becomes inevitably harder to ask those kinds of bigger questions and questioning our societal constructs and the script that's been written for us. Excellent summary, um, and thank you so much. Nandita, if people would like to find out more about World Population Balance and yourself, what can they do and where can they go to do it? Um, thank you, Michael. Um, you can find us on uh, our website, worldpopulationbalance.org. We're also on Facebook and Twitter under the same name. Um, but I have to warn you that we are in the middle of a big transition in terms of our uh, revisioning uh, mission and, and values. And as such, the website is due for an overhaul. So look for those changes in the coming months. Um, but Dave Gardner and I also co-host our own podcast called the Overpopulation Podcast. And uh, you've been on it. Jane O'Sullivan's been on it. And I've loved those uh, conversations. Um, we talk about everything under the sun related to overpopulation, overconsumption, degrowth, pronatalism, uh, et cetera. So, um, you know, it's a great place to check out um, some, some cool conversations. And certainly so many people in Australia have said they're utter fans of the Overpopulation podcasts and definitely one of its kind. I really recommend checking that out. Um, if indeed we're broadcasting this on World Population Day, Nandita, um, I can't wish you a happy World Population Day, but I can wish you an existential one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And likewise. Actually, that reminds me, um, leading up to World Population Day, I am organizing an event uh, that people might be interested in. Um, so it's it's going to be a panel with uh, four women covering different parts of the world. So I've got um, someone coming from Israel, um, US, India, and Greece. All four women are going to speak about um, the, the role of pronatalism in overpopulation that's going to be on july 7th that sounds absolutely amazing um give me a front row online ticket <laughs> you bet <laughs>
Los animales están sufriendo en los mataderos, en los laboratorios, circos y zoológicos. Ellos son usados como entretenimiento, vestimenta, comida y en experimentación. Ellos no son propiedades. Sienten como nosotros, pero viven encerrados en el más intenso dolor. Mírale los ojos, rompe esas cadenas. Especismo es... listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast. We have just heard the track Abolition from the band Futuro Vegan Pop. Before that, I chatted with the new executive director of World Population Balance, Nandita Bajaj. Taking over the reins from Dave Gardner is definitely more than mission improbable, but I think the organisation and the movement more broadly can benefit and <laughs> grow from Nandita's drive, a passion and morality. Nandita discussed the then upcoming World Population Day event, pronatalism and overpopulation, challenging the social pressures to procreate, we are now well past World Population Day, but the event is up for all to see on YouTube. I will provide the link in the description. I will also include a link to my interview with 3AW because I crave the attention. Also, SPA's own Dr. Jane O'Sullivan was interviewed on the excellent award-winning The Sustainable Life podcast to discuss SPA's discussion paper on the ageing crisis myth, Silver Tsunami or Silver Lining, in which Jane was the lead author. Jane also spoke at a recent Scientist Warning Europe event for World Population Day. I will include that as well as SPA's media release in the links. No shortage of watching and reading if you're feeling game. So what do you think of two vegan upstarts infiltrating the population movement? Has my mere mention of Harry and Megan at the introduction put you into an undefinable rage and you need to express it? Well, try cold shower first. And if that doesn't work, you can contact PGAP anytime on the contact form and rate and review us on platforms such as Apple Podcasts. Stick around for next time when I have many exciting interviews to share from my visits across Australia, including intentional communities in northern New South Wales and game changers in Adelaide. Amazing people doing incredible things whilst being despondent on the future trajectory of humanity. My kind of people, in other words. Until then, until then.